This is Trinity Western University's Chapel Podcast, where our daily chapel gatherings are captured and shared for the TWU community. Whatever your day looks like today, we're glad you're tuning in. are from What Does the Bible Say About Suffering by Brian Han Gregg. Quote, suffering is one of the great universals of human life. It can strike rich and poor, old and young, strong and weak, good and wicked. No one is immune from suffering. If suffering doesn't play favorites, he goes on, then everyone must grapple with it personally at some point, end quote. Some of you may know that many, many moons ago now, I was ever so briefly a pre-kindergarten teacher with, believe this, a classroom full of 15, like 10 plus 5, 15 energetic and funny, energetic and sweet, energetic and rambunctious, energetic and cleverly determined four and five-year-olds to myself every day, Monday through Friday for about seven hours. Never before have I been called Mr. Ellis in rapid around-the-clock sequence so much in my life. Every two seconds, it felt like some pint-sized person was summoning me. They were employing their outside voice, though we were inside. Mr. Ellis! I can't get my juice box, my juice box open. Mr. Ellis! My mom said I have to eat these carrots in my lunchbox, but do I have to? Mr. Ellis! She won't give me back my doll and let me play with it. Mr. Ellis, he hit me. Mr. Ellis, can you tie my shoes? As I don't know if recess is a universal educational experience the world over, but much like I did when I was their age, these kids lived for recess. To my chagrin, nap time was less popular. I think, in fact, most of these pint-sized people felt nap time was humankind's absolute worst invention. Upon dimming the lights, alerting them that the dreaded time had come, you could see their tiny faces change expression, followed by protests. Hands down, recess was king. One game that they were crazy about playing during recess is duck, duck, goose. What happens, if maybe you're not familiar, is maybe anywhere between six to ten kids sit in a little circle facing each other, and one of them goes around tapping the, another person. Everybody in the circle gets a try, saying duck, 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 duck. They do this until someone that they get to, that they want to be it, is tapped, and concurrent to them tapping them, they yell, Goose. So that person is now it, and, and they chase whoever they tapped around the outside of the turkle, try, trying to return the tap before they're able to plop down into the open seat. 
And if they don't catch them, which is most often how it goes, then that person who was tapped that failed to tap the other person restarts the whole duck, duck, duck process. And then they finally tap someone and it goes on from there, like for forever. Little kids, if you don't know, they eat that stuff up. They will play that game over and over again, even to the point that their little hearts are about to overheat. A more adult equivalent game might be musical chairs. But an even more adult experience is being selected for extra screening at the airport or at a border crossing, a random selection, they like to call it. Though I have never had anything to hide, and I hope that you don't either, it, it still isn't something I ever seek out or look forward to. I'm not happy when it, when it occurs on me that, oh, randomly selected screening. Instead, it's just the kind of thing that's thrust upon you without warning, without invitation, without consultation. And then you respond, hoping that it will be over soon. Sometimes it is, sometimes it is not. In life, it can often enough feel like we've been randomly selected to endure suffering of some kind. Similarly, it seems to creep up on you out of nowhere, attacking you with an acute accuracy, with tenacity, and with power that is far from being something that we have seen before sometimes. It's it's way more than an inconvenience. It is disheartening. It is debilitating. Unlike you and I, Jesus knew with exactitude the calamity that he stood on the precipice of, a, a blameless man of carpentry from some dinky, forgettable ghetto. Nazareth, can, can anything good come from Nazareth? To be forfeited, Jesus was, to be poured out, Jesus was, for the sins of those who were the perfect picture of depravity, inconsistently consistent, as fair-weathered as fair-weathered can be. I mean, my goodness gracious, one minute, Jesus is the quintessential, incomparable, best thing since sliced bread. But quicker than you can say, Hakuna Matata, these same people are yelling, crucify him. Oh, trouble is coming. The disciples are those people. The spectators are those people. We are those people who stretched him high and and hung him wide on a rugged cross, torturing him in the worst way on account that we were ruled by fear. Even though we know in three days, as the hymn says, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He he arose, a victor from the dark domain, and lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. But bear in mind, resurrection was preceded by persecution. It was no scene from Black Panther, as if Jesus arrived with an assembly of muscle-bound warriors engaged in a passionate call and response, which increased 
in your hearing from a distance. You, you could hear it faintly, my fa. My fa. My fa. That's Hollywood, y'all. That is not the Bible. Jesus was God in the flesh, not God in a costume constructed of heaven-sent vibranium. This means the flogging, the, the crown of thorns pushed onto his head, being slapped in the face, all of this hurt, and it hurt for real, for real, not for play, play. In Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John had one, two, three chances to support Jesus, their friend, their teacher, as his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, verse 34. The plain appeal that he made of them to watch and pray to fortify him in such a vulnerable and precarious moment on the brink of violence, in the end, it, it just was, was too great for their scattered brains for their weary bodies and compromised souls to handle. Upon returning from each invitation to stand in solidarity with him, Jesus found them asleep. That is, until the hour had come and his betrayer arrived. In verse 36, to his father, Jesus said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, Yet not what I will, but what you will. One challenge to modern Christianity is that the loss of mystery has led to a loss of majesty, writes Max Lucado in his book, In the Grip of Grace. He goes on to say, Max does, the more we know, the less we believe. No wonder there is no wonder. So often, we think that God prefers us to know what it's like to have plenty, despite that the Apostle Paul made it clear that knowing what it is to be in need and content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, should be the lesson that we aim to acquire. In this little book called Surprised by Suffering, the role of pain and death in the Christian life, renowned theologian R.C. Sproul wrote, quote, Jesus suffered for us, yet we are called to participate in his suffering, end quote. Now, I know that probably isn't super popular to say, but it's biblical. And in the Christian life, there will be good times, like really, really good times. It's just as those, those good times will not be at the exclusion of extreme and at times persistent adversity. Advance notice of the who, what, when, where, why, and how of disaster's hardship, hardship's pain and pain's disruption may remain unknown, but it will find you. It'll find you wherever you are. It'll find you in retirement and at recess. It'll find you during the summer months and in the winter. It'll find you in all seasons of life, at all income levels, at all ages, for everyone, everywhere. 
It's the, the startling phone call at 2 a.m. Or the diagnosis that the medical staff discreetly brings your family into a private room to share. It's, it's the lunchtime text message that you, you, you knew might come, but you hoped would not. You'll notice with me that Jesus did not mince words in requesting that the cup of crucifixion be thou removed from him. In, in very unambiguous terms, he stated, take this cup from me. And he did not add pretty, pretty please with sugar on top. He just spoke earnestly and he spoke with candor from his heart, the desire he knew was possible to be fulfilled because of the source. Nothing is too hard for God. However, three letters employed by Jesus set the example for whoever dares to call, dares to call themselves a Christian. Repeat after me, Y-E-T. What does that spell? Praise the Lord, y'all are rocking with me. Yet, yet not what I will, but your will, what you will. This conjunction yet underscores the tension between two choices while favoring one as superior, which for Jesus is to say, he was happy for God to allow him to avoid suffering. But more than what he wanted, he preferred, he prioritized, he prized the will of his father no matter what. You can spend your days that you have left on this earth like some spiritual Dora the Explorer, probing what you are or are not predestined for. You, you are welcome to do that, which only God knows anyways, and he likely isn't to tell you anyways because you just ain't that special. I mean, I suppose that's your right if you want to be a spiritual Dora the Explorer. Or another option is you can get on with the business of surrendering every morsel, every nook and cranny, every crevice of your life to him. The Bible, if you haven't read it, implores the latter. Hear you me, as puny human beings, not everything that happens to us is in our control. Amen, somebody. But we all choose to how we will respond to whatever happens. My prayer then is just that you will learn to land on yet, Y-E-T. And I'll tell you what, it necessitates knowing God for yourself. In another context, I might say it's knowing God for, not, not for, take the R off of it, for yourself. It is lovely if your parents pray for you, but you better know how to pray for yourself. There, there maybe is an Uncle Jimmy who, who always got up early in the morning before morning itself had begun its day. And he got up to read his Bible and you admired that. Or maybe there's this, this young wife named Catherine. She's a mom, she's a small business owner, and she's in your church. And somehow with all that she has going on, she fasts every other Friday from something. But your uncle can't read the Bible on your behalf. And Catherine cannot fast for you. No one can trust God for you. You, yourself, you, yourself, you, yourself, 
alongside the Holy Spirit. You have to embody the truth of the gospel and rhythms that establish it deeper and deeper into your heart. You need to know God for yourself through your own testimony. You can't live off the testimony of your grandmama. You can't live off the testimony of somebody sitting next to you, somebody in your dorm. You need to have a testimony yourself. Since our spiritual walk does point to a destination, it's important that you understand the destination is heaven. We get there through Jesus, not good works, but it's also a journey. It's a journey, and your journey at a moment's notice, one day, someday, is going to suffer a rear end or head-on collision with suffering. In that moment, two options will be available to you that neither Siri or Alexa can help you with. You can tell God, as you should, as anyone would, as Jesus did, take this cup from me, and that's it. At every turn, you can, you can lean deeper and deeper into a singularly focused push for the removal of whatever suffering you face, which if not granted, will make you feel justified to rebel against God or to harbor resentment against God or to have anger against God. That's one possibility. The other option is this. Already made your request, your request already having been made known to God, you can make the wise choice to land on Y-E-T. You can land on yet. You can say, Jesus, take this cancer from me. Anoint the surgeon's hands. Consecrate the chemotherapy, the therapy, but yet not my will, but what you will. Spirit of the living God, protect me from this financial judgment that if it moves forward in my life, it will significantly fracture the qualities that I've experienced. I pray that prayer, yet not what I will, but what you will. You can say, Lord, heal my sister from this progressive condition of which there is no known cure. Everything is possible for you, God, yet not what I will, but what you will. You can say, rehabilitate my ability to walk after that accident, God, yet not what I will, but what you will. You can say, transform infertility to fertility, yet not what I will, but what you will. You can say boldly before God, reprogram my mind to overcome dementia, yet not what I will, but what you will. Father, I stretch my hands to thee, there's no other help I know. God, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Follower of Christ, you will lose some battles on this side of heaven, I'm here to tell you. That is guaranteed. But do not lose heart because the battle has already been won. May the Lord, our God, be your anchor and your joy in pain and suffering with you always to the very end of the age. Go in peace. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that this message has challenged 
encouraged, and inspired you as we continue learning and growing together in discipleship to Jesus. Every week, you'll find new chapel messages on our channel from local and international speakers ranging in diverse and engaging topics. So go ahead and subscribe for the latest of what's going on in chapel. Much love and happy listening.